Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him... All are alive. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just bow our heads for a prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that through your word you would speak to our hearts and minds and that we would know your love ever deeper. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Well, one of the best bits of news of the message of Christianity is that there is life after death. A lovely member of our congregation, dear Phyllis, who we said goodbye to last week. It was her funeral here. um, Was so looking forward to moving on to be with her Lord and Saviour. Every day for the last couple of months of her life, she prayed that prayer, Lord, take me home to be with you. But interestingly, one of the most uncomfortable and frightening parts of the message of Christianity is also that there is life after death. Why is that? Well, the reason is because if there is life after death, it really, really matters how we live our lives. It really matters that we take the long-term view (coughs) of life followed by eternal life. But there's a problem. Because in our world, we are constantly under pressure to take a short-term view on things. Bankers gamble billions in the drive for profits and bonuses only to see the whole thing collapse around them. There's reluctance to invest in clean energy, to save money in the short term, but it's possibly ruining the planet for our great-great-grandchildren. Many of you at work will be under pressure to take shortcuts and find long-term solutions, and find short-term solutions which might get you through the next quarter, the next few months, but leave your company exposed 
10 years down the road. Children are tempted to sometimes cheat in exams, to take in a bit of crib paper, because short-term, they think it'll get them a better result. But they don't learn very much by doing that. Payday lenders do all they can to persuade people who can't afford it to take a short-term view. Get the latest TV, get the latest iPad, get the latest car. It doesn't matter if you don't have the money, worry about it later. The trouble is that later, they don't just lose the TV or the iPad or the car, they can lose their homes because they can't pay the rent because all the money is going to the payday lender. When we take a short-term view of life, we just store up problems for the future. So how can we resist these pressures? How can we live the right way and make good and godly decisions and not just go with the flow or respond to the loudest voice or make selfish decisions? I think there are some clues in our gospel reading and much in the life of Jesus to help us with these important questions. So, our gospel reading in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus. You see, in Jesus' day, there was an ongoing argument between two different religious groups. Now, there's a surprise. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. But the Pharisees did. And so, of course, did Jesus. So if you think of the Pharisees as the kind of very devout religious people of the day, then the Sadducees were the religious elite. They were the religious aristocracy, if you like. They had a vested interest in there being no resurrection. You see, they enjoyed positions of power and influence. They had the majority in the Sanhedrin, the court, a bit like having a majority in Parliament, I suppose. They controlled the temple worship, which was a very lucrative business with all the selling of sacrifices and all the rest. They cozied up to the Roman occupiers of Israel at the time, which gave them many benefits. And if there is no resurrection, then there are no consequences after we die. Therefore... God's judgment, if you like, his rewards and punishments can only be given out in the here and now, in this life. And if you are one of the people who are on top of the pile, like the Sadducees, then that is pretty good proof that you are being blessed by God. But if there really is resurrection, life after death, then you have a major problem. After all, What if God's judgment comes after death? All of a sudden, being on top of the pile in this life looks a little bit precarious, especially if it's at the expense of others. And if there really is life after death, then a much longer-term view is needed. And that might interfere with one's lifestyle here on earth. And so in this passage, the Sadducees question Jesus about life after death, and they tell a crazy story about a woman who marries seven brothers after each one in turn dies young. And then they ask him, look, if there's life after death, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous story. Jesus realizes this, and he cuts through this red herring and says in verse 35, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, 
and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage because we'll have eternal life. So Jesus says there is a resurrection. But Jesus also says only some will be worthy of it. In other words, it really, really matters what we do in this life. And it really matters that we take a long-term view of life and then eternal life. And on this Remembrance Sunday, we remember all of those who've given their lives in the service of defending our freedom to live in a free democratic society here in the United Kingdom. Their sacrifice drastically shortened their own lives, but bought the freedom of millions who would come after them. One soldier who was introduced as having lost his arm in fighting for his country, said, I didn't lose my arm, I gave it. In John chapter 15, Jesus says that the greatest love anyone can have is when they lay down their life for another. And this is the very shape of the Christian faith. Death followed by resurrection. Dying to our own selfish desires in order that real longer-term good can come out of it. And that is, of course, exactly what Jesus has done for each one of us. There were no shortcuts for Jesus. He took the ultimate long-term view. He looked at the world, at the people around him, desperate, lost in all the wrongs of the world, without hope, and he gave up his life on the cross, in order that they and we could be saved and counted worthy through faith in Jesus of resurrection to eternal life in the future. And when he rose again from the dead following his his crucifixion, it was proof, if you like, that God's love and Jesus' sacrifice were enough to overcome evil and death. So how do we take this amazing gospel shape of death followed by resurrection and apply it to our lives in order that we live in God's way. Well, in John chapter 12, there's another clue. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And this is a big clue. Something has to die before good new things can come out of it and multiply. So, how does a person avoid poor short-term decisions? Answer, die to the immediate demands to meet unrealistic targets. It might mean missing your bonus, but resurrection will follow with long-term growth. I remember a conversation when I was being interviewed for a job in the year 2000. And I was um, the the French managing director of a software company um, had uh, flown over and he was interviewing me for the job to run the UK operation. And um, he had a wonderful name, Thibaut de Clisson. I love that. I've never forgotten it. But um, the UK business was making a bad financial loss. And as he was speaking to me, he looked across the table and he said, so if we take you on, when can we expect for the results to, to improve? He said, end of the first quarter? which is three months, and I looked at him and I said, no way, that can't, that's, that's too quick. And he said, oh, end of the second quarter, six months? And I said, no. I said, in my experience, going into a new business, 
It takes at least a year to find out what's going on, see what the problems are, change things to, 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 to get things on the right track. And then I said in the second year you could expect to see an improvement in the business. And he was a bit disappointed, I think. But in the end he hired me because I think he knew he'd heard the truth. But he had to die to the unrealistic expectation of suddenly having a quick profit within three months. So, how do we avoid burnout? We have to die to the need to work, 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 work and respond to every demand that voices ask of us and build in space. Do you know, this is very real for me recently. Isabel is not only a very good church administrator here at St. Matthew's, but she looks out for the staff team. A few weeks ago, she noticed that we were all working too many hours. I mean, way too many hours. And our tanks were running low, if you like. And so she organised a half day out at a retreat house on Friday last week. And we, we were there, we just spent time together, praying for one another, not doing a single minute of day-to-day business. It was so refreshing. When I drove away, it felt like resurrection. Similarly, how do we deepen our relationship with God? We need to die to the the need to be constantly busy, whether that's at home or at work or anywhere else, and find time to be with him, to pray, to read his word, to ask for guidance. So maybe, maybe there are some things in our life we need to sacrifice and die to in order that we flourish more. Maybe we have someone at school who we've been avoiding and not talking to because we've fallen out with them a bit in the past. Maybe we have to put that aside and die to that and reach out with a hand of friendship and re-establish that relationship. Maybe we have to give up trying to control everything and everyone around us in order that God can take over. Maybe there are things in St. Matthew's we have to die to in order that God has his way. Jesus gave up everything in order to do the one thing which his Father called him to do, to save us. And so as we think on this Remembrance Sunday of all those who gave their lives for our freedom, and as we think of all that Jesus gave up for us, perhaps we need to ask the question, what might we need to give up for him in order that his kingdom come in our lives and in our communities and in our church? Amen.